Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. My guest today is John Ginetta, President and CEO of Heartland Family Service. Our conversation is being recorded today by Zoom. John Ginetta was appointed President and CEO of Heartland Family Service in 2009. Under his leadership, the 146-year-old agency has grown tremendously, with operating revenue up by 140%, program growth of 77%, and several large capital projects recently completed, enabling Heartland Family Service to support 80,000 people annually from 19 locations in east-central Nebraska and southwest Iowa. John holds a Master of Business Administration degree from the University of Nebraska at Lincoln, Gallup University, a Master of Science in Social Work degree from Columbia University in New York City, and a Master Specialization Certification in Gerontology from the University of Nebraska at Omaha. John currently serves on several nonprofit and community boards, including the Leadership Council for Hugh Spring, a leadership development program tailored to LGBTQI plus early career professionals. Most significantly, John is the father of four adult children and grandfather to four, of course, gifted and amazing grandchildren. John, welcome to the show. Thanks, Stuart. It's good to be here. So I wonder if you wouldn't mind unpacking a little bit what it is that Heartland Family Service does. Yeah, so I think it's a little bit helpful to understand where we came from. So as you read, we've been around for a long time. And when we started in 1875, the community of volunteers that got together to create this organization understood that poverty, and that was really what they were trying to solve, poverty uh, wasn't going to be addressed by the government. The government really didn't get into that until much later and um, until the next century. And so they started by, of course, what most people would think of to do first, giving people money who needed it so that they could buy food and you know, have safe housing. And uh, that evolved to having opportunities where people could work to earn money to be able to you know, buy food and have safe housing. And of course, the more they got into it, uh, the more they started to realize that there would oftentimes be complicating factors that were getting involved that were making really difficult for the people that they were trying to help to have jobs and to maintain housing and safety for themselves and their families. And so, of course, then they started to create programs to address those various challenges and social, social problems. So to this day, we continue to do that. So early on, they had a program called the Friendly Visitor Program, which wasn't something that we created. I think it actually evolved out of the United Kingdom and then found its way to the U.S., and, um, and so these friendly visitor programs were sort of sprouting up in bigger communities all over the country. And ours is no exception. And so we had these volunteers, usually upper-class women, who would go around visiting the people that were helping with cash assistance or with these uh, jobs. And um, just to, well, I'm sure early on to proselytize because 
a new, very, we were started by eight churches, Protestant churches. And so early on, I'm sure that was part of the, the work. Uh, it didn't take them too long though to figure out with so many different Protestant churches partnering uh, that, that it wasn't going to work unless they pulled the faith component out of it and let this collaborative entity be non-sectarian. And so we've, we've pretty much always been non-sectarian, but anyway, these um, friendly visitors would go to visit these people we were helping, you know, to bring good cheer and, um, but probably more than that, even to um, identify what other issues, you know, what, were they being helped? And if not, what were some of the other issues that needed to be addressed? And so those friendly visitors, as they started to see other problems that were going on in these various, uh, for these various individuals and families, started coming back and saying, hey, I'm noticing a lot of people having issues with X or Y, and not seeing that there are any resources out there to help them created programming to be able to do that. So even as early as 1911, we had counseling services, we called it rehabilitation, we had employment services, we had an orphanage, we had legal services, medical services, uh, we had uh, information and referral services. So we've always been a multi-service organization, but the bottom line has always been about how do we help individuals and families be strong so that they can be, you know, be um, self-sufficient and experience well-being so that they can thrive. And we continue to do that today. So as you mentioned, now our programs are organized into three focus areas, the largest of which is counseling and prevention. So that includes all the work that we do around mental health, behavioral health, uh, which includes um, substance use treatment and gambling, a treatment for gambling addiction as well. And then uh, the next largest would be our housing and financial stability focus area, which is a number of different programs that help people either prevent becoming homeless or once people do find themselves in a housing crisis, getting them rehoused as quickly as possible. And, um, and then the smallest focus area that we call child and family. And that's what I would say are programs that are a little bit more proactive and asset building where we're, we're working with individuals, families, even communities now. I love the history and I love the arc and I love how you've talked about the, the modern iteration of some of those supports and services that are provided today by Heartland Family Service. As you look at the region today, and obviously we're talking at a time during a pandemic, so perhaps I should think about this more in terms of, say, the last five years and what you see coming up. What are the primary underlying challenges that this community is facing that Harlem Family Services is going to have to tackle? What are these primary problems we're facing as a community? Well, interestingly, it's the two major things that we do. It's affordable, safe housing, access to affordable, safe housing, and mental health. Like we saw, we're still seeing um, so many more people with mental health and uh, substance use disorders I can't remember the exact statistics, but in general, we're seeing mental health issues triple for certain populations. And we know from other natural disasters, so we very frequently have been called in to provide case management and service connection for individuals and families impact, impacted by natural disasters, especially in Iowa, where we've had a couple of major floods, and then most recently, now COVID and the derecho storm. And so we have staff that take calls from people who just need connection to help and we're connecting them to those resources or what have you. But what we've learned from those various um, natural disasters is that it's very often not until after the disaster is quote unquote over 
that you start to see people really needing help. It's like after kind of the storm has calmed down, people are sort of like sitting in what remains that they start to understand, or maybe they're just more ready at that point to get help or to need help. And so uh, we're sort of anticipating that once this pandemic, I don't say fade away, but sort of transitions to being more of an endemic that we just learned to live with, we'll start to really see people needing more and more help as it relates to mental health and housing. The challenges are that on the housing side is there, we really lack uh, access to sufficient, affordable, safe housing in this community. And there's a, some really exciting initiatives going on trying to change that, but it's not going to be a quick fix. And then on the mental health side, uh, we're really struggling. And I think this is true across this sort of ecosystem uh, with staffing in this pandemic, especially in the last six months of this year, we've been losing our clinical staff left and right as hospital larger systems have had turnover because people are just so worn out from battling this pandemic for so long, then those hospital systems absolutely needing to have staff are just, and they have more access to resources are upping what they're uh, paying and then pulling away our people. Or um, people are just getting so exhausted um, that they're just going into private practice where you can have better control over the volume. Uh, you're generally seeing people with insurance who have the, or the ability to pay and you're not dealing with the complexity of issues that we have to deal with with the clients that we serve. And there's not near the amount of paperwork because we work with people who are uninsured or who are on Medicaid. It comes with a ton of paperwork responsibilities. And for most of our therapists, that's the least favorite part of this work. Needless to say, we've, we're, we're down probably half of our therapists and we're not getting applications. So that's a big challenge. It's one we'll, we'll overcome, I know, but uh, in the short term, that's a big challenge. And then the long term, how do we build a more equitable system in terms of how community-based organizations like ours are reimbursed for this work versus those larger health, health systems that have better lot, um, you know, bargaining power? And how do we get closer to um, actually covering the costs of what it takes to deliver behavioral health services? I mean, it's not an accident that there's a lack of people in, the, in these fields, some of them especially like psychiatry. It's really, really hard to find psychiatrists and we're gonna need you know, those people more than ever. I'm a rolling stone, bound to roam. Come the morning, or I'll be gone. You talk about having a, um, a legacy of an organization that runs back 146 years now. And in some ways, it must seem really disheartening that there's still a need for you to exist after 146 years. Um, now, obviously, you mentioned, for example, natural disasters. So those are going to continue in some way, shape or form. But you also just referenced an imbalance in incentives, in systems, you talked about equities. And so clearly there are places in this sort of overall um, way we've set up social structures and community structures that don't seem in balance. So I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, what would you like to see done so that we can actually get past these challenges? Yeah, I mean, that's a great 
great question. And it's actually kind of exciting, I think, right now. So the mission statement, I mean, it's, it's very similar, but a couple of key words were added because our board, um, when they went through strategic planning this fall, made some changes to it. So instead of we strengthen individuals and families through education, counseling, and support services, we now strengthen individuals, families, and communities through advocacy, education, counseling, and support services. So they broadened the, the view of, the, of where impact happens. It can't, it's not enough just to impact individuals and families. We've got to look broader at the community. And the way we're going to do that moves beyond education, counseling, and support services. It has to include advocacy. And it's, it's not that the individual family direct client work isn't important. It's, it's not one or the other. It's, it's non-binary. We have to do that. And we have to take a more active, strategic, and thoughtful role in how we advocate for systemic change, which is hard because it involves, at some point, it involves politics. And no one wants to go there because we don't want to disrupt support for the organization. We don't want to create a bunch of conflict. But there's lots of areas where I think everyone agrees. Uh, where we can make changes, that's a low-hanging fruit. And then we can just keep the conversation going about where other changes need to happen and how we work through some of those disagreements about what's the role of an organization like ours and government and what's an individual's role and those sorts of things. Otherwise, we're just perpetuating. It seems feels like, and, the, and everyone agrees, it feels like we're just perpetuating these systems of inequity that in large part creates many of the challenges that we're, we were established to address. I'm curious if there is a key issue that would maybe unlock a lot of this. So for example, um, like a universal basic income, is there something that we could be advocating for that might unlock some of these um, really intractable seeming issues? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely, universal basic income and universal healthcare would probably unlock a, a lot of things. It, it would certainly make access to the tools that would uh, to the sustainable tools that would ensure that uh, once people get to certain levels, that there wouldn't be as much backsliding, you know, because that's one of the things we're really interested in. It's not just helping people get better, but it's helping people get better and sustain that, that thriving well-being. And we're seeing that we're making progress with the people that we individually serve, but how does that scale up so that we're impacting more of the community? And I think some of those systems changes would be would definitely be helpful because one of the things that we see too in some of the communities that we serve where there's been poverty for so many generations there's also been trauma for so many generations and then when you talk about communities of color there's historic trauma that goes back generations and what we know is that if we don't address that trauma then whatever we do whatever we're doing most likely probably isn't going to stick and people are going to have to keep coming back and um and that's, you know, that doesn't seem responsible either, because again, then it feels like we're just not necessarily profiting off of, but we can, we continue to exist because we haven't ever really helped people address their core problems. And so they continue to have to come to us. And that's just keeping us in business. to curtain.
some herbal tea especially during this last couple of years as we continue through the pandemic. What are some of the operational challenges that you've had to address? And, and, and maybe what are some of the opportunities that perhaps this, this allows for you? The very first challenge was deploying uh, as many people as we could to remote work- workforce without necessarily having the technological infrastructure to be able to do so. Obviously, there were some staff that we couldn't deployed to remote, and we, we never will be able to because of the nature of their roles and what they do, especially like, for example, our residential program staff and some of our other support staff, like our maintenance teams and what have you. But, um, you know, we wanted to get as many people out of those buildings as possible just to create better safety for the people who had no choice but to have to be in them. Um, but, you know, not having necessarily the resources. I mean, most of our computers operate through um, on thin clients. So it it's just makes it easier to do updates, um, but that poses challenges when you're trying to like figure out cameras and uh, how do we get people onto um, you know technologies like Zoom. The other was just having the money to buy all those licenses for staff and um, and things like DocuSign so that uh, people could be getting client signatures on agreements and intake forms and what have you and billings. Uh, without having to do any of that work in person. So that just, that was a big challenge for probably three months. But then luckily the community stepped up. We were supported in major ways by private donors, by government funds. And that really helped us to be able to uh, meet those challenges. The Paycheck Protection Program uh, was um, hugely helpful um, and even allowed us to do things like provide hero pay to our staff to recognize uh, the extra challenges that they were having to face like whether they were staying you know, in location or working from home or what have you, because both, both of those scenarios have different, oftentimes overwhelming challenges. So, and then I think the opportunity that created is it really catapulted us to this century in terms of our technology infrastructure. We still have, cha- we still have challenges. If you ask our staff, the number one thing that irritates them is our IT uh, for different reasons. One of the things for us that makes it difficult is because we do so much behavioral health work, we're held to pretty high standards when it comes to privacy. And that means on the security side, it can really feel like it's getting in the way of you being productive because of all the things you have to do, the things you can't do in an environment that's, that's very secure. But to be sure, this whole um, pandemic really helped us to cover a lot of ground quickly in the area of technology, getting some of those tools deployed and working virtually. So, and I don't think we'll ever... You know, in some, in some ways we know face-to-face is better, but in some ways a, a virtual meeting like this interview is just as good, if not better than doing it face-to-face. We can see each other clearly. It's like we're sitting across the table and yet neither one of us had to spend any time traveling to the meeting. So it gives us more time to be productive. Uh, we're finding the same thing at work. And now we actually even have some staff who will perennially be able to work some of the time remotely, just trying to figure out what's the right balance um, so that we're, that we're, sh- that we're sure to be creating good social connection and also really meeting the needs of our clients. So other challenges early on. Well, the, of course, it was just the emotional toll, and that continues to be a challenge of simultaneously living in a pandemic and dealing with 
loss and change in our own lives and our own families and our own friends, while also coming to work and trying to help other people doing that. So it was a double whammy. Lots of people with whom I work lost, family lost friends, no people who, who died because of COVID. And then also we're working with clients and seeing that same kind of loss. So it was, it was just a lot. It is a lot. I think too, working remotely for as long as we have and not seeing each other face to face. And we've been back in the office, you know, not full time, but uh, we've been back since, um, well, June was our soft opening. July was when we really started to be more consistent in terms of how often we were in the office. But in general, you know, we don't see each other as much as we used to. And that certainly has eroded some level of social connection. I think in part that's contributed to the great resignation. When you're not as connected to the people with whom you work, it's a little bit easier to take advantage of opportunities elsewhere. I would imagine that the idea of a culture of inclusion is something that you've been practicing for years, if not decades, but to actually give it a name and to give it some intentionality. I, I think I've been observing that that is something that Harlem Family Service has been working on. What is a culture of inclusion and how do you, how do you create that? And it's also making me wonder how much of that is also given what you just said around social connection and the pandemic, uh, also a culture of compassion. Yeah, I mean, I think those all go together. Part of inclusion is feeling belonging, feeling safety, physical and psychological safety, um, feeling respected, feeling that who you are, your history, your culture, what you bring to the table is respected and valued. And so we've actually been sort of pivoting during this pandemic, especially after um, George Floyd was murdered, to even focusing more specifically on racial equity and belonging within our organization as well. And so we created a, a list of racial equity principles and priorities and um, are rolling that this year into a new strategic plan for our diverse equity, inclusion, and belonging work. Um, our board created a task force to help provide some like higher level strategy and governance of that effort because it's that important. And uh, for the last year, we were working with a, a really... Um, helpful consulting group to help us think through how we make some of these changes, um, providing some opportunities for structured and facilitated learning and growth for the leadership team. Because we're none of us are really, especially when I say us, I mean white people, we're not very experienced at having difficult conversations around race. We get triggered really easily. We don't ever want to be seen as racist. And so those conversations can just be super difficult and um, can easily swerve into becoming very emotional. So we were initially trying to do this on our own, but quickly realized it would probably be a lot more productive if we had someone helping us. And so, so we engaged a consultant. So that was, that's been really helpful. There's still a lot of work to go. I think most of the people at the organization are excited about that and on board, but we do have some people that aren't who, um, who believe maybe we've gone too far that, who don't believe in things like white fragility and white privilege and find that conversation divisive and unhelpful. And so we just have, we have to work through that, you know, continue to work through that. We've been working through that, but it's an emotional work of labor. There's no way to divorce the emotional piece from it, but it's necessary. We can't really, I don't think, deliver on our mission if we don't get, if we don't continue to have these conversations. We'll never get there probably, but we need to keep making progress. Hey now, honey, I've been driving around in my car, looking for some kind of open bar. 
gonna be alright, gonna be alright. Got no money, but I'll work it out with my charm. Having a good time, ain't doing no harm. It's gonna be alright, gonna be alright. Hey now, honey, I've been driving around in my car, looking for some kind of open bar. It's gonna be alright, gonna be alright. Got no money, but I'll work it out with my charm. Having a good time, ain't doing no harm. It's gonna be alright, gonna be alright. Tell me about your childhood. So I was born uh, in an Air Force family. My parents are originally from Minnesota. My, my dad from Duluth and my mom from Elk River, which is down just outside of Minneapolis, so 45 minutes outside of Minneapolis. And they met because my mom went to private school at the time up in Duluth, which was only for women. And so when they would have a dance, they would invite the men from University of Minnesota Duluth over. And so my dad ended up um, on her campus for that event, but he and his friends left the dance to go bowling, which coincidentally my mom and her friends did too. And they were in lanes next to each other. They saw each other and each of them without the other knowing it, were trying to figure out a way to change the bowling uh, lineup so that they could be setting pins at the same time. If that gives you an idea of how long ago this was, which they were both able to do. And that led to a pretty amazing marriage and four kids. I'm the second of them. So I ended up actually being born in Italy, which is where my dad's parents, they immigrated here from Italy. So that was just kind of a cool coincidence. But I would say the thing about my childhood was that because of that sort of growing up in the Air Force, I had the opportunity to live in lots of different places. Of course, Italy. And then we uh, lived in Minnesota a couple of different times. Alabama, we were living in Alabama from 66 to 68, you know, when a lot of civil rights stuff was kind of coming to a head. Of course, I didn't know that as a kid, but, and then um, Alaska for, for several years, Montana, and then it appeared in time for me to go to high school. But so through that experience, I had the opportunity to interact with all kinds of, you know, diverse friends, family, um, assumptions that I would have maybe picked up in my family got challenged a lot. I always had this, I, from when I was little, I just always had a burning desire to know more and connect more with people who were different from me. I, I don't know where it came from. I just always had that desire. So I remember, for example, when I was in sixth grade, they announced one day that they had created an exchange program with a school up in Teller, Alaska, which was an Inuit village. So there would be an essay contest to select kids from our grade who would get to go there to live and then host the kids when they came here. But once I heard about it, I was like, oh my gosh, I have to do this. And that was one of the most amazing experiences probably of my whole life, um, especially going to live there in that village for those two weeks and go to school there and just see how a whole other group of people lives. And sadly, the poverty in which they live, but also the great um, sort of the deep like history and connection and joy and everything else. What are one or two elements of that that just, just won't let you go they just stick in your mind so i had two friends uh jerry okbiak and ruben topcock and ruben his dad was one of the there were only by the time i visited you know had this opportunity there were only two families left in the whole village that still had sled dogs and ruben was one of them and so there was one day that ruben and jerry and i hitched up the dogs and we took off across the frozen sea uh, unfortunately I don't think Ruben knew as much about driving a, a team of dogs as he thought he did. And we ended up tipping over and one of the dogs got away. And the whole time I was there, we never did 
um, catch that dog again. Um, but while that dog was loose, he um, got into a fight. So there was only a couple of white people that lived in that village. Uh, one was a teacher and the other, they owned a store. And the people that owned the store had a little poodle. And that uh, escaped sled dog got a hold of that poodle one day. I didn't know what was going on. I just heard all this cheering. And I, I kind of, when I was able to see, I saw that these dogs were fighting and that um, actually that the sled dog was killing that poodle. And the kids were all cheering for that sled dog to do so. And that just really, that's one of the things I kind of never get out of my mind. So I was like, wow. I don't think at the time I fully understood exactly why the other kids were cheering, but I certainly do now. But that just never went away. Um, I think the other part of that was just like, that was my first sort of a opportunity to ever immerse myself in a different culture and to realize that so many of the things that I just took for granted or assumed about this world and how it works weren't, you know, that's not everyone's experience, probably not a lot of people's experience. I needed to be way more open to what this world is really about to really understand it. You've been at the helm there at Heartland Family Service since 2009, operating at this higher level, this strategic level. What have you learned as a professional along the way? How are you as a person different now? Gosh, yeah, I think I've learned a lot. I mean, for one thing, change is hard. I knew, I always knew it was hard, but it's really hard. And it takes a lot of time, especially if you want people to come to it willingly and not be forced into it, which to me, that's the only way you get real changes when people come to it willingly and adopt it because they believe it's important and useful and what they need to do. I've learned that communication has to happen way more often than you think necessary. And even then people are still not going to think you communicate enough. I've learned that um, delegation is key that it doesn't make sense to have really talented people all sitting together in the same meetings over and over and over again and seeking layers and layers of approval. Um, it makes, makes way more sense to spend a little bit of time up front making sure everyone's clear about the direction and then giving them the freedom they need to go out and make that magic happen. They're going to be happier. You're going to get more done in a shorter amount of time and, um, and you're going to get way, way better in and that impact will sustain whether you as a leader are there or not. So I know our board oftentimes has talked in the past about, uh, oh gosh, what we do if John ever leaves. And I've always said, it's going to be fine because so much of what you see happening, I'm not involved in. 
to me, if, if whenever I give advice to other people that I'm mentoring who are in leadership, it's in leadership roles, it's how do you grow the next level and how do you, so that you can stay focused on growing the business and not working in the business. It's easier to do when you're a large mature organization like ours. So, and I recognize that privilege that comes with that. My colleagues that work in small organizations, they can't do that. There just aren't enough people. But when you get to an organization that that's this size, you definitely can. But then I sometimes will see people getting into the business instead of being at that more strategic level. Is there something that you're particularly, as you look back, you're particularly proud of in you know the work the work you've been doing? Yeah, I mean we've we've had massive growth. I mean when I started we were around sixteen million dollar operating budget, and now we're closing in on forty million, and we've really deepened the impact of the work that we do. We've we've been able to access funding to um, expand how we use technology so that now um, we have more consistent data about the people that we serve across all of these different programs and are starting to, um, we've been working with a consultant to create a data warehouse so that we can start to create more dashboards that will let us know how things are going at any given time and get a better sense if we push this lever, what's going to happen as a result so that our interventions can be way more specific, whether that's organizationally or at the client level. Um, and even someday where we can start to use analytics that would predict what we ought to do based on past performance and progress, which will be really, that's to me, it's going to be super exciting and sort of next level. It's been really exciting to see some of the progress we've made in our culture work. Uh, whether that's around being trauma-informed or the work that we're doing around diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, racial equity. Again, we still have a long way to go, but we've certainly made a lot of progress. And that's, that's been kind of exciting. Even how we've diversified our staff uh, to better reflect the community and our board. Um, again, we still have more work to do, but we've made a lot of progress. You don't get to your level of experience and interest and passion and motivation and um, professional accreditation without having a lot to give back to the community. And there are a couple of things in your bio that you shared with me that kind of, uh, one I'd not heard of, so I wanted to ask you about it, and the other seemed top of mind. So I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the work that you do, uh, what motivates you to work with uh, an entity called Hue Spring. Uh -huh. 
And also, um, I wanted to ask you about the US-Ukraine Foundation Board of Advisors, which you serve on, because as a, at the time that we're recording this, you know, Russian military forces are massing in different places around the Ukrainian border. The uh, Russian state has annexed Crimea region in the last few years. Um, so I'm really curious about what are you doing with uh, those two organizations? Yeah. So I'll start with the US-Ukraine Foundation. Um, I got involved with with that back in 1998, when I was working at Metro Community College, I was um, grant writer there, director of grants and contracts. And so the college was invited to be a part of this partnership between Omaha and the city in Eastern Ukraine. And um, the city, the idea of this partnership was to send city officials from both, um, from both communities to learn from one another, primarily helping the people in this small town in Eastern Ukraine that were responsible for finance for the city or for um, elections or streets or sewers or whatever to come here to see how we do things and vice versa. The city didn't have anybody on their staff that could actually coordinate that, um, but the college volunteered their government relations director who used to work for the city and knew all the players, hoping that eventually it could lead to faculty and student exchanges. And so I was only at the table because there was going to be a contract. But then a year into it, my colleague, who office actually next door to me, the government relations director, he got recruited away. So the president of the college came to me and he's like, John, you're the only other person who knows anything about this. Can you take this over? And I was like, oh yeah, sure. And again, you know, I'm, I'm attracted to diversity and learning about other people. So it was exciting having no idea that this would be something that would become almost like a lifelong vocation for me. I don't have any Ukrainian background. I didn't know anything about Ukraine or really Eastern Europe in general until I I got that call from the president of the college. He said, great, in two weeks, you need to take the city clerk, the um, assistant city attorney, and another gentleman from the mayor's office over there for a three-week exchange. I'm like, okay. So I grabbed a Ukrainian, uh, Lonely Planet Ukrainian phrase book and looked over the documents of what had happened so far, and off I go. Our partner city, which used to be called Artemisk, that's the Ukrainian pronunciation, but recently changed their name back to what they were pre-Soviet Union, which was Bakhmut. And they've been around for probably 400 years now, I would guess. You know, to find out in Bakhmut, everyone pretty much is Russian speaking. They speak Ukrainian for official events and gatherings, um, and they teach it in school. And some schools actually use Ukrainian as a language of instruction, but most use Russian. Because many of the people there are from what, what is now Russia. And Ukraine was just the last place they happened to be living when everything sort of fell apart. Uh, but there are people who have historic Ukrainian roots and they do celebrate that and they will speak Ukrainian in their families or they're very good at speaking and aren't afraid to speak it when needed. But the lingua franca is certainly, it's actually, they call it shuzhik, which is like a mix of Russian and Ukrainian, but it's mostly Russian. Anyway, um, it just never, you know, I, I said I would, I would do that. The grant ended like nine months later, and I actually was recruited to another employer. And I said, I've got to bring this with me because it's almost over and they can't endure another change. And then it got refunded for three more years. And my employer at that time was like, hey, no problem. That's great. It seems exciting. And then I found out about a grant to do student high school student exchanges, and we got funded to do that. And so I had, um, let's say, Omaha Northwest, Omaha Benson, and Papillion La Vista High School. Um, I had students and teachers from those schools go there, and I had teachers from schools over there come here. Um, some of those people I continue to be friends with and hear from regularly and we communicate. Um, sadly, that, that city is um, just 
10 kilometers from the war. So they hear the bombs. They, um, they're still in Ukraine, but they always worry at some point, maybe not. And some people pray that hopefully they won't be, that they want to be a part of Russia. So it's a little bit divided. But um, the agency that, that received funding from USAID to do that community partnership program was this US-Ukraine Foundation, which was founded by Ukrainian diaspora, who had always longed for this moment when Ukraine would be free and independent, because the only other time ever in the whole history that they were free and independent was 1921 and 22, and then that was it. They've always been seen as sort of this geopolitical pawn, and you can even see that playing out now. Like, yeah, NATO would love to have Ukraine be a part of NATO, but they don't want to lose gas from Russia, and so it's always how do you, how do you appease Russia? And if push comes to shove, oftentimes Ukraine just has to, you know, go away because there are other more important issues at stake. It's sort of how it's always been. You must have people that you know there. It must be difficult for you to communicate with them and to know that perhaps daily life goes on, but also there are these other, as you mentioned, these traumatic geopolitical issues happening at the same time. Yeah, so it's interesting. So in lots of parts of Ukraine, this whole this whole war and what's happening even now has just increased feelings of Ukrainian patriotism and nationalism, which was always kind of lacking there. I think a lot of people just sort of almost felt embarrassed to be Ukrainian. Ukrainian. That's what I, the sense I picked up in lots of conversations um, or, or maybe feelings of both some level of pride, but also like some embarrassment because they're not, they weren't more developed, that there was so much corruption, all those sorts of things. But then you meet some of the young professionals that would, um, that would come here because after that U.S.-Ukraine Foundation-sponsored community partnerships project ended after the second round of grant funding, I continue to be connected with them through this Open World Leadership Center, which is a branch entity of Congress that was created after the Soviet Union dissolved, initially just bringing Russian professionals here for 10-day professional um, experiences. It's not reciprocal exchanges. They just come here and, and spend about 10 days in an in a area that... Um, of importance like law or government or social services or what have you. Eventually it expanded to include other former republics, including Ukraine. And so the US-Ukraine Foundation routinely gets grants to um, once the people are selected for participation, they set up those opportunities across the country for them to focus on that thing. So they always reach out to me to see if I would host a delegation. It's usually uh, five young professionals and then a, a facilitator and an interpreter when the themes are focused on the things that we do at Heartland Family Service, which there's a, I mean, we've had theme, we've had groups here to learn about how we do uh, substance use treatment, how we do substance prevention, how we uh, work in, with housing, helping people who've been displaced from their homes, um, just uh, managing a social service agency, strategic planning, all kinds of things like that. I'm always impressed with these young professionals that come here because they are very optimistic. They're extremely talented and capable, and they've got this great, um, I think, vision for the future of the country. And I think great ideas and energy around how they get there, uh, but they do need support. So that's where it gets kind of disconcerting for me because here's a country that could really be doing amazing things, but they do need some support. I feel the same way about Russia, actually. Same, I've had similar opportunities through Open World and others to interact with people from Russia. And even my, like my friends in Bakhmut who, are, who identify as Russian and, and, and want greater integration with Russia, not less. It's the same. But it's, 
they experiencing this, they experience the same thing here that we experience in this political environment. It's really hard to sift through the information to know what's real and what's not. So I don't see, I see people in that community becoming really divided about whether you're part of Russia or you're part of Ukraine, what you should, you should support. And it's really hard to have a conversation about it because everyone gets their information that just reinforces where they already are in their, in their thought process. You tell me you're scared You tell me you're weak But I know you're stronger Than what you think And I know it's hard mentioned young professionals and energy and that leads me to the work you're doing with Hugh Spring, Hugh Spring which yeah. is an organization that I uh, an entity that I'm unfamiliar with so yeah, what, yeah so Hugh Spring is, is is relatively new it, it started pre-pandemic and then it sort of during the pandemic had to hit pause and is just getting going again this year with its second class but it's sort of similar to what you might think of when you think of um, like a leadership Omaha or leadership council bluff so you get a you get a group of a cohort of people together, and then they go through a kind of a curriculum or a set of experiences where they that they process together. What's a little bit different with Hughespring is that each Hughespring scholar also gets a mentor that they meet with outside of class. So I um, served on the I serve on the leadership committee, and then also the, with the first class I was a mentor. I my schedule was such I wasn't able to get involved with mentoring this year, regrettably. But yeah, so and. The first class, which again, uh, started off before the pandemic, and then the last part of it was interrupted by the pandemic, but it was still really incredible to see all these um, really encouraged and encouraging young people that are really ready to make changes to create better supports and better inclusion, better safety for the LGBTQ plus community. Um, And it was important to me because I think, gosh, I lose track of time, but it was probably seven years ago now that I finally realized and accepted the fact that I'm gay, had that painful conversation with my then wife. We decided at first we would separate after our youngest graduated from high school and then decided that, you know, we love each other. This is crazy. We love each other. We've got this great family. Why do that? So we were trying to figure out a way that we could stay together. But after a couple of years of that, I just said, you know what, I, I just, I have to be my authentic self. I can't be someone I'm not. And, um, and it's kind of killing me to do it. So, and I realized that 
Nobody even knew me, not even my kids, my siblings, nobody. Because I had, in order to have a trusting relationship, you have to have vulnerability. In the absence of vulnerability, you don't have that. And I hadn't been vulnerable or honest with anybody, myself included for the longest time. And so when the opportunity came to be involved in this program, I thought, yes, absolutely. Um, I want to share that experience. If that helps other people, then that's great. I know, and that's part of what sort of drives me in my work as a leader, especially as it relates to DEI, was that how many years I came to work and had to cover to pretend to be someone I was not, using up so much energy that could have been poured into my work that wasn't. And so I don't ever want anyone to have to do that. I don't want to stretch this too far, but it feels as if your, your life has been one where you have modeled to others and also came to this realization for yourself that difference was something to be approached with curiosity and interest and to be lifted up and celebrated. Uh, And it it, it feels to some degree, as you allude, a little painful for you to get to that place in your life where you realize that you yourself had some degree of what might be deemed socially different. And you embrace that within yourself as you had done since you were a child. Yeah, it just took a long time. For the longest time, I denied, I, I denied it and I hated it. I'd go to church and I'd pray for God to take it away. I mean, it was tough. And um, I, just, I just would hope nobody would ever have to go through something like that. Also, because it, you know, I think, too, about the impact this has had on my wife, who's such an amazing person and the harm it caused her and the pain it continues to cause her and even my kids. I just would hope no one would ever go through that. My guest today has been John Ginetta, President and CEO of Heartland Family Service. John, thank you so much for sharing your time and your experiences and your thoughts and your leadership with us today. You bet. Thanks. Thanks for having me on the show, Stuart. It was fun. That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at Lives Radio Show. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives Radio Show and Podcast. Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, and more. Thank you.